Hello, we are from Ukraine. We are Ukraine FM team, Radio National Resistance. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host, Anne Levin. You are listening Ukraine 242. Welcome to Ukraine 242. On the 24th of February, Russia began bombing Ukraine. For all of us, it was the onset of life in a changed world. In the next half hour, we will hear people in Ukraine describe this global alteration as it unfolds. I'm Anne Levine reporting for Pacifica Network from WOMR in Provincetown and Krena FM in Ukraine. Our guest, Sergeant William McNulty, is the co-founder of the Ukrainian-based humanitarian organization Operation White Stork. Operation White Stork has evacuated over 20,000 Ukrainians into neighboring countries and is already helping to repatriate some of them and provide the defense forces with first aid kits. At the outset of today's program, I want to underscore that this show contains upsetting information about weaponized rape and other atrocities. Please use discretion before listening. Before we listen to Sergeant McNulty, we present Ukraine Under Siege, a weekly news broadcast produced by Krena FM exclusively for Ukraine242.com, presented and reported by Volodymyr Anthema. Hello, this is Volodymyr Anthema from Kiev, and now you're listening Ukraine Under Siege. The heroic struggle of the people of Ukraine continues. According to the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine for 108 days of the war, the losses of the Russian army are 32,500 personnel, 1,435 tanks, anti-aircraft warfare systems 98, aircraft 214, helicopters 179, cruise missiles 130, Vehicles and fuel tanks 2,470, warships boards 13. Russia earns 93 billion euros from fossil fuel experts in 100 days of war in Ukraine. These are the results carried out by researchers at the Finnish Center for Energy and Clean Air Research. Russia's revenue from fossil fuel experts in the first 100 days of the war, February 23 to June 3, amounted to 93 billion euros. The European Union imported 61% of this volume in the amount of about 57 billion euros. The largest importers were China, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Turkey, France and India. China's imports remained virtually unchanged, while Germany managed to slightly reduce its oil imports from Russia. Poland and the United States dealt the biggest blow to Russia's revenues. Lithuania, Finland and Estonia achieved sharp percentage reductions of more than 50%. Despite this, Russia's average export prices increased by 30% compared to the previous year, thanks to the growth in global demand for fossil fuels. Turkish President Erdogan announced new negotiations with Zelensky and Putin this week. Problems with the export of Ukrainian grain will be discussed. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stressed that it is the Russian Federation that contributes to a serious deterioration in the situation with hunger outside the Ukrainian borders, in particular in African countries. 
Russia has stolen up to 500,000 tons of Ukrainian wheat worth $100 million since the Russian invasion in February, according to Ukrainian officials. The invaders in the occupied territories continue to rob the local population and illegally confiscate the property of enterprises. The Russian occupier sent a ship with stolen Ukrainian scrap metal to Russia for the third time. The ship sailed from the port of occupied Mariupol on Sunday, June 12. This was reported by the advisor to the mayor of Mariupol, Pyotr Andrushenko. According to him, the invaders unfurled the Russian flag in the center of Mariupol. Thus, they celebrated the Independence Day of the Russian Federation, although there were no Mariupol residents at this holiday. It's completely incomprehensible. In other Ukrainian cities occupied by the Russians, Kherson, Melitopol, Berdyansk, the occupiers also held festive events for the Day of Russia with concerts, songs and dances. But the Ukrainian residents of these cities ignored these events. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and French President Emmanuel Macron will visit Ukraine on June 16. The leaders will come together to reaffirm the support of the three largest European countries for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The visit will take place one day before the European Commission will provide an opinion on Ukrainians' application for candidate status for EU membership. This conclusion will form the basis for a political decision at the summit of EU leaders on June 23-24. Ukraine is ready to switch to NATO standards and calibers in months, said Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov. According to the minister, in some sectors of the front, Russian troops have 10 times more firepower than Ukrainian ones. The Russians still have an advantage in artillery and multiple rocket launchers. And for this advantage, the Ukrainians have to pay a heavy price. Even the Pope has already admitted that Ukraine needs weapons to defend itself from Russia. The Pope confirmed that the people, like the individual, have the right to self-defense, otherwise they may become like a suicide. Thank you for listening to us in the struggle for freedom and independence. That was Ukraine under siege. A Ukrainian news update by Volodymyr Anfimov, radio news anchor for Krena FM, exclusively for Ukraine242.com. Now, our guest, Sergeant William McNulty, is the co-founder of the Ukrainian-based humanitarian organization Operation White Stork. A 2015 presidential leadership scholar, McNulty earlier earned a bachelor in economics and communications from the University of Kansas, and in 2007 an MA in government from Johns Hopkins University. McNulty is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He served with the Marine Corps. Operation White Stork has evacuated over 20,000 Ukrainians into neighboring countries and is already helping to repatriate some of them and provide the defense forces with first aid kits. Sergeant William McNulty, when did you start Operation White Stork. I flew over February 27th and then was in Ukraine on February 28th to conduct a needs assessment about how could my network help. I come from Chicago. So Chicago has a Ukrainian village. I have Ukrainian friends. I went to school with Ukrainian Americans. And so, you know, I was just appalled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I had never been to Ukraine before, so I went over there to learn. White Stork was not in place. Previously, I had founded and ran a global disaster response organization for over a decade. And I have a lot of understanding of man-made and, and natural disasters. 
And so I just wanted to go over there and, and I wanted to help out, as did my partners. How do you frame Russia's invasion? People refer to it as a war. How do you see it? There is a mountain of evidence that what Russia is doing is trying to erase and destroy Ukrainian culture. You've read a lot about Russia using rape as a tool in this war. It's just so widespread that I've concluded that Russia is using forced impregnation to wipe out Ukrainian bloodlines. Oh, my gosh. And I think that's supported by the fact that according to UNESCO, there's over 120 destroyed UNESCO sites that Russia has targeted. These are World Heritage Sites. According to the Ukrainian government, there's over a thousand churches, schools, hospitals, museums, places of worship that have been struck by precision-guided bombs. So it's increasingly evident that this is an operation by Russia to destroy Ukrainian culture. I think it's genocide. And you believe that rape is one of the tools that's being used to create more Russians, as it were? To introduce Russian bloodlines into Ukraine, yes. And are you hearing this from the victims? Yes, yeah, so we have helped evacuate women who have been raped by Russian soldiers. We are working with a number of partners who are working with young Ukrainian teenagers who have been raped by Russian soldiers and are now pregnant. And so I think the evidence is too widespread to not conclude that Russia is using rape as a matter of war policy. Rape has been used throughout millennia as a tactic of genocide to shape the future of a country through forced impregnation. And that's happening in Ukraine today. And many people shudder at that thought, but it must be acknowledged. These teens that have been impregnated, how are you getting to them? Are there shelters for them in particular? We are way beyond our subject matter expertise when it comes to what to do about this, right? We do evacuations, but it's partner organizations that are handling whether or not they're seeking abortions or not, or the mental health crisis. Our organization really is focused on evacuations and delivering first aid kits and other types of medical supplies. How are you performing these evacuations? And from where are you evacuating people? Our evacuation program started the beginning of the war. When I first went in, I traveled maybe 800 kilometers across western Ukraine, meeting with various political leaders, the military, the territorial defense forces, and leaders of supply chain companies. And there were two things that I thought that my network could help with. One, evacuations and moving women and children out of the country and into safety is a matter of priority. And the second being individual first aid kits for the military. On the evacuation question that you asked, we started by using a system of 12 passenger vans and sedans. And we were paying these young, mainly Polish men in their 20s, really courageous, kind of balls of steel who were driving into areas, cities that were either under siege by Russian forces or sometimes even into Russian-occupied Ukraine to pull these women and children out and bring them back to the safety of Poland. That's how the program started. It evolved. It started in Krakow, Poland, but we now have headquarters in Kiev. We have a location in Kiev and in Krakow, Poland. 
we were bringing them into Poland and we were dropping them off at the government reception center in Premish, which is right across the border, because Poland is treating these evacuees better than any other bordering country of Ukraine. And I think it's because Poland learned a hard lesson during World War II and hasn't forgotten that. And so there's a government reception center there that does case management. They provide medical, food, shelter to these Ukrainian evacuees. And I'm using the word evacuees intentionally because these Ukrainians are going home. That is their intention. Are you taking anyone in country to the West or is everyone going to Poland? Early days, we were bringing them to the West to the relative safety of Lviv, which is still being hit by Russian missiles. However, mainly military related targets or communications infrastructure. Now we are running a system of buses. So, you know, we started evacuating civilians by funding this network of pretty courageous, mainly Polish teenagers and, and men in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And they would drive into Kharkiv or sometimes have to pay off Russian checkpoints in Kherson to go in and evacuate these women and children and then bring them back to the safety of Lviv or all the way into Poland. In the early days, we were evacuating maybe 7 to 14 a day, and we were paying those drivers anywhere from $125 to $250 a day to evacuate 4 to 8, 10 people, depending upon the vehicle. But our Ukrainian interpreter, her name is Kat. She was really critical of this because of the risks that those Polish men were taking. And she thought it was irresponsible of us to be funding this. And she had a friend who was the owner of a bus company. And she suggested that we instead focus our limited funds on using buses to evacuate people. So we made the decision to switch to buses because it was just a better use of our limited funds. And we could move more people per day. So at the height of our evacuation program, we were running 11 buses a day. We're now down to only two a day because we started to just not see as many people needing to be evacuated coming off the trains. And those buses run from Lviv into Poland right now. Is that good news or bad news that you're seeing less people? Well, the Ukrainians who wanted to leave and they had the means, they've left, right? And so at first I was like, wow, Ukraine is all middle class people because those are the people that we were seeing on the buses. And that, you know, I had confirmation bias from that. But in reality, it was really those were just the people that had the money to get out and the means to go to somewhere else in Europe and wait out this war. But after spending enough time traveling throughout Ukraine, the reality is that a lot of people who haven't left for a variety of reasons, it could be because they are taking care of a loved one or an elderly person and they just can't leave. It could be they don't have the financial wherewithal to leave. It could be that their entire life is that home that they live in and the community garden that produces the food they eat and they don't know anything else. So it's a variety of reasons. Some people have just accepted that there is fighting taking place around them, especially you'll see farmers just going about their work with Russian tanks and Ukrainian tanks firing rounds at each other in the not too far distance. Tell me about your program with the first aid kits. When I went in on February 28th and met with the military, I was shocked that Ukraine didn't have in the hands of every soldier the most basic of first aid kit called an individual first aid kit that a soldier wears. These kits contain a number of items that are designed to stop bleeding in the case of a traumatic event like a soldier getting shot in the chest or 
you know, an artillery round severing the limb of civilian or soldier. And so that was the second thing in order of priority I decided that we were going to focus on was delivering these individual first aid kits. They're expensive. They're about $100 a piece, whether you purchase them at a discount or flying in thousands of bulk components and assembling them ourselves, what we were doing in Krakow. So far, we've delivered over 16,000 of these kits, 4% of what the Ukrainian military requested at the beginning of the war. Is the need for these increasing, staying the same? There's still a, a huge need for these kits. There are still units that are requesting them. I think it's not to the extent it was at the beginning of the war because it's not just White Stork who is delivering individual first aid kits. There are other organizations, nation states, large aid, aid organizations that have sent these in as well. But where White Stork differentiates from other organizations we are delivering our first aid kits directly to frontline units. So we have a network of vehicles that are our own, or we work through partner organizations and we deliver these kits to the frontline. It's a bottom-up strategy rather than a top-down strategy, which the nation states and the large aid organizations often donate resources to the Ministry of Health. These go into large aid depots and they get distributed in a top-down fashion. It's my experience in the Marine Corps and also what I saw, you know, running a global disaster response organization over 10 years, that when you do that, the supplies reach higher upper echelon units there and then they're peeled off and the front lines get a fraction of what's been donated. And you see that today in, in Lviv, for instance, the hospitals are well stocked. The police there or military have nicer kits. But when you go to the front lines between Mikolov and Kursan, for instance, they don't have those luxuries. And so that's why we started White Stork to focus on delivering these supplies directly to the front lines. I've heard so many stories about the NGOs happening and what is not happening with so much that's been donated. I heard that there's a field hospital in Lviv that doesn't have any soldiers in it and that has room in it. Yes. So my former organization that I co-founded called Team Rubicon had sent its medical team to Lviv and they were doing primary care. They really weren't doing emergency care. And, you know, my understanding is they pulled out for that reason. Lviv is a transient city right now, in my opinion. I think they have been treating soldiers there in, in some hospitals. They certainly have. And Lviv has also taken cruise missile strikes that killed over 30 people. Russia has targeted some training areas in an airfield nearby. They also targeted a, a communications tower near the train station. So Lviv is not without its attacks but it is also in the relative safety of the West. It's not being leveled like what we saw in Mariupol. Russia has built its military around its artillery, and Russia is using that artillery to raise cities the same way it did in Grozny during the Second Chechen War. Russia has more artillery pieces than any military in the world. And so, um, and so as I'm traveling throughout Ukraine, one of the fascinating things is to see not only, of course, these blown up Russian main battle tanks that are now around Kiev or in areas in the east and the south, but also all the stolen BTRs, BMPs, tanks have now 
acquired from from their Russian neighbors because they either ditched them because they ran out of gas or or you know ran away scared. How long do you see this persisting? Right now, Russia has dug in in the areas it controls in the in the south and the east, as have the Ukrainians, and it is trench warfare. In trench warfare, you're not going to see much movement on either side. It's a war of attrition. And so you're going to continue to see increasingly more and more Russian artillery barrages. And you're going to see Ukrainians use technology and especially drones to try and drop munitions on those Russian units or APCs or tanks or artillery pieces. So we're seeing a long, drawn-out, bloody conflict, unfortunately, unless we can provide the Ukrainians with more top cover, like closing the skies, providing a no-fly zone so that Russia cannot send its planes over Ukraine, or providing them with more advanced weaponry, more anti-tank missiles, and more long-range missile systems so that they can have a fighting chance against this Russian aggression. As far as closing the skies goes, do you mean NATO? Certainly, NATO would play a role in that. I do know, and there are Russian planes and reconnaissance planes flying overhead. There are Russian planes firing missiles into Kyiv, as we saw just a few days ago. And unless we implement a no-fly zone, Russians are going to have that tactical and strategic advantage of being able to fly their planes over Ukraine. And that is putting Ukraine at a disadvantage. Do you think closing the skies is worth the risk? I do. And if Russia resorts to nuclear weapons because the world is trying to stop a genocide, and make no mistake, this is genocide. But if Russia is going to resort to nuclear weapons then for a conventional war, then unfortunately, I think we're already there. This genocide is so widespread. It's war in Europe. And I don't think it's going to stop in Ukraine. I think that you saw comments about Vladimir Putin comparing himself to Peter the Great, more like Ivan the Terrible, in my opinion. But I, I think he has these ambitions to renew the Russian Empire. He's certainly sick in the head, but I, I don't think he's going to stop in Ukraine. And that's why I think the world needs to be so focused on stopping him in Ukraine. How? Providing Ukraine with all the military resources that it needs to stop Russia. And we're not providing them enough right now. They need more drones. They need more missile systems for the Javelin system. They need the simulators to be able to train their military and how to use those systems without actually having to plug in the limited numbers of batteries into the command launch unit that they have. There's a great article in the Wall Street Journal about this. But I'm not focused on anything on military. It's all humanitarian aid. Military is something I did in the past in my life. We have to just stay focused on providing these individual first aid kits that give frontline units a fighting chance of survival if they get hit. And what we're going to be focused on next is repatriation. So it's, it's the Ukrainian government has asked us to help bring Ukrainians back in to Ukraine. And we're now seeing that when you go across the border today, there's lines of Ukrainians that are trying to get back in from Poland into Ukraine. It's the opposite of what I saw when I went into Ukraine on February 28th was miles of women and children standing in the cold. This is February in Ukraine. It's not the Bahamas. 
and it was lines for miles of women and children just standing there waiting to to get out. We're now seeing the opposite. We are seeing more Ukrainians go back into Ukraine every single day than coming out of Ukraine into Poland. Why do you think that is? Do people people must feel safer now or more determined? What is it? Ukrainians consider themselves evacuees, not refugees. They are extremely proud and inspired. They are very proud and trying to improve themselves and learn and build businesses. Other than my few Ukrainian-American friends, I really knew nothing about Ukraine. I was so shocked. As you recall, early on in the war, Russia had Kyiv surrounded on three sides. And the Ukrainians that I've met are returning to these cities in the north, Kyiv or Irpin, Buka. Ukrainians are returning to their homes now. They have a lot of concerns to deal with. Russia leaves behind lots of mines is one of its signature moves wherever it goes. We've seen reports of Russia putting grenades in inside kitchen cabinets. Russia has booby-trapped dead bodies, putting a grenade underneath the dead bodies so that you know whoever is going there to dispose of it is harmed or killed. Ukrainians are having to tie a, a rope on a leg from a distance and pull that body a little bit to see if there's any booby trap under it. So Ukrainians need to have explosive ordnance disposal, you know, EOD techs and mine disposal. So there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order for Ukrainians to go back safely into these previously Russian-occupied cities like in Irpin. But Ukrainians are going back, and that is a positive sign that they believe that the war is going well. I don't know what the exact number is, but I'm pretty confident to say that Ukraine is taking more Russians off the battlefield than Russia is taking Ukrainians off the battlefield. Mm -hmm. However, Russia has far more people to throw at Ukraine than Ukraine does to defend itself against Russia. Hopefully it will be safe soon. One last thing. Have you seen or heard anything about looting? We supply Ukrainian frontline units across the east and the south. And so I'm engaging with these primarily young men and hearing the stories. Yes. What are Russians taking? Are they strapping televisions onto tanks? I've heard the stories about when Russia goes in, their signature move is to, like I said, lay a, a bunch of mines or booby traps. And then it's like an agenda item of theirs is to steal the loot. And that's just what Russia does. It's a very sick culture. It's like what they thought was going into Ukraine was just finding something worthwhile to loot. I've seen the reports of them stealing John Deere tractors and bringing them back into Russia. Who would have ever known that Ukraine <laughs> had all these really, really nice tractors? Lots of nice tractors. And who would have ever known that, that they were going to be pulling Russian tanks out of, <laughs> out of wheat fields? <laughs> <laughs> If there's one lasting image, it's of the Ukrainian farmer pulling a Russian tank out of wheat fields. It just warms the heart, warms the soul. Well, I've taken more of your time than I said I would. I thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. For more information or to comment on today's show, go to Ukraine242.com. To leave a message of support for the Ukrainian people that will be aired on 24 stations across Ukraine, call 510 883 
510-883-3115. That's 510-883-3115. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Ukraine 242. I am Roman Davidov, the programming director of Kraina FM, Radio National Resistance. We broadcast in 24 cities throughout Ukraine. We arranged this interview for your host, Anne Levin, the creator of Ukraine 242. Our collaborators are WOMR Radio and Pacifica Network. We bring you first-hand reports from people in Ukraine and their experience during the Russian invasion. Editing and production by Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network. Recordings by Michael Levin. The music you heard was Probas and Hardy. Dobroho Vechera. Where are you from? More information available at ukraine242.com. Thank you for listening.